He is risen. He is risen. Nice, nice. Uh, as I was thinking about this morning, uh, earlier this week, it hit me that that phrase, he is risen, and the response, he is risen indeed. Uh, those are phrases, at least for me personally, I only, I only say them once a year. Only one day in 365 do I ever say that phrase. Is that true of anybody else, or is it just me? Anybody else only say, he is risen indeed on Easter. I'm the only human being. Okay, a few of you, even if you're lying to make me feel better, that's good. Um, I mention that because I, I have a love-hate relationship with holidays. Uh, and I was reminded of my love of holidays this week. Uh, for those of you that are parents, you know that sometimes your kids serve as kind of a mirror and uh, they're, the, they're, they're their own unique people, but a lot of what's in them comes from watching you. And Wednesday morning at 7 o'clock on the dot, my oldest daughter comes tearing into the kitchen. Can I, is it time to get up? Can I get up now? I said, yeah, you can get up now. What are we going to do? What are, what are we going to do? Uh, you've got school. I'm going to work. No, no, no. It's April Fool's Day. <laughs> <laughs> what are we doing tomorrow? <laughs> it was her eyes were like the size of half dollars and she was so excited for April Fool's Day and all day she was pulling some silly pranks and some really thoughtful ones that make me nervous about years to come uh, and so she gets that from me I get all the way into holidays and I, I love them but there's also a part of me that um, that doesn't, doesn't like what holidays do because unintentionally, a lot of times, holidays end up minimizing what they intend to be celebrating. So a, a very easy example of this is Valentine's Day. And I know some couples who, uh, they are very romantic and very thoughtful on Valentine's Day. Period. Like, that's the day to be romantic. Check. And so this, this day that, at least in our culture today, is meant to celebrate romantic love, for a lot of people, ends up doing the opposite and compartmentalizing romantic love to one out of 365 days. And so I don't think any holiday, uh, whether it's um, thoughtful or not, I don't think any holiday intentionally goes about trying to sabotage the rest of the year and just celebrate on that day. But for a lot of us, that happens. And I think Easter is one of the most extreme examples of that. Because for those of us that believe that the death and resurrection of Christ are historical realities, then it should be the premier reality of our lives. It's the hinge point of all human history. And he is risen indeed should not be a phrase that we utter in the midst of a day of plastic eggs and candy and new outfits. It should be what is uttered with our very existence. Every aspect of our existence should cry out, he is risen indeed, instead of it just being this one day. Catholics do it a lot better than us. We, they, they do a much longer period of time. We got one day. And so what I'd, I'd love to do just for a short time this morning is walk briefly through our history as humans and look at how crucial the death and resurrection are and, and make the argument that our very lives should utter that he is risen indeed. First, let's pray. 
Father, I thank you for, uh, for how you've used this, uh, this time of preparation for me as a reminder of how often I, uh, I live as if you are not risen, uh, or at least as if it doesn't really matter that you did or did not rise. And I ask that for each of us, you would help us to enter into the big picture of our story, our, our um, really messy, ugly story, and see you and your relationship to us as you meant it to be. Please take from our minds the distractions of lunch preparation and college basketball and the work tasks that lay before us this week and let us be present here. We love you. Amen. So going back before the beginning, not to the beginning, but before the beginning, there was God. There was the triune God, one God in three persons. And I'm not going to try to explain the uh, theological ins and outs of the Trinity. John Huggins is here, and if you'd like to, you can see him afterwards, and he will lay it out to you very clearly. You've got the Trinity, the triune God, from all eternity past to all eternity future, in community with himself. As mind-blowing as that is, he's in community with himself, Father, Son, and Spirit. And when we say that the, the triune God is in community with himself, what we're saying is that the triune God is in a constant and unbroken sharing of life and love. Community, whether it's between us as people or within the Godhead, is this constant, unbroken sharing of life and love. And Jesus mentions this at the end of his life. He's praying for his disciples, and he says in his prayer, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Before the foundation of the world, before anything that we see around us existed, the, the triune God was sharing this community of life and love. So before the beginning, you've got God in community. And then there is the beginning as we know it, creation. God makes the heavens and the earth, the water and the land, and the fish and the plants and the animals, and man. Man in his image. That's what it says in Genesis, that God created man in his image. And that's a really heavy thing and, and very, very complex. What does it mean to be made in God's image? Again, John Huggins is here for you after the service to explain all of what that indicates. But a big part of what it means to be created in his image is that we are invited to share in the life and the love that's being shared in the triune God. We're not invited into divinity, not divided into the role of God, but we're invited to participate in the life and love that springs from him. The way Paul described it to some people he was debating with is that in him, in God, in the triune God, we live and we move and we have our being. Our very existence is found in him. He is the source of all of our life and our love. We can't create it. We can't create life. We can't create love. 
We can perpetuate it. We can reflect it. We can't create it. And I think God very intentionally gave us a natural illustration of this in the relationship of, of the sun and the moon that we have before us on a daily basis. And at night, we often talk about walking by moonlight or seeing something by moonlight. But hopefully we're all aware of the fact that that's a misnomer. Because there's no such thing as moonlight. There's just sunlight. But when the moon is in a place that it can be reflecting the sun's light, the sun's light does reflect off the moon, and we see an aspect of the sun's light, an aspect of the sun's glory that we can't see by looking at the sun. As a matter of fact, I have that against looking actually right at the sun. But we can look right at the moon. And when we look at the moon, we're not looking at the moon's light. We're looking at the sun's light reflected off the moon, but in a very distinct and unique way. In the same way, we as humans do not perpetuate, do not create life, we do not create love. We are created in a very distinct and unique way to receive the life and the love from God. And as we receive it, reflect it to each other in a way that shows God's life and love, his glory, in a very unique way. So that's how we were created. So again, before creation, God sharing life and love within the triune Godhead. Then creation, we're invited into that to reflect his life and love. Sounds great. So what next? What we know is the temptation and the fall. And whether you grew up amidst flannel graph, fruit and snakes, and uh, naked people with strategically placed foliage, or this is the first formal Christian message you've ever heard. You've probably been familiar with this concept that there's this fruit, and there's this snake, and there's these people, and they, they like, ate the out-of-bounds fruit. It had, like, it, had, it was genetically modified, or it had gluten in it, there's something wrong with this fruit. I don't know why, but you can't eat this fruit. And really, if you, if you step back, it makes a lot more sense. Because again, God created us to, to, to dwell in him, to receive life and love from him. Everything we need is coming, springing from him. And he does set it up such that there lived, Adam and Eve are in this garden, and there's this one tree that's bearing this fruit, and God just says, look, you don't need this. This will not benefit you in any way. Just don't go there. It won't benefit you. And the deceiver, symbolized here by a snake, plants some doubt in Adam and Eve. I think there's something available apart from God. He's actually holding out on you. And if you'll take this, you'll get something that you're not getting from God. He plants that seed of doubt, and eventually Eve and Adam take hold of that doubt. We're not getting all that we need from God, so we need to go over here and take something else. And that's the fall, that's, that's sin in essence. It's this reaching out for life or love from some source other than the source that we were created to receive from. And it's evident in the reaction that Adam and Eve have. It seems really odd at face value to see they eat this fruit and all of a sudden they're like, oh man, we are naked. <coughs> they eat this fruit and all of a sudden they're aware they have no clothes on as if it hasn't been readily apparent. In the past, 
But what happened is their, their eyes, which had been fixed on God, their creator, in constant communion with him, were taken off of him and put on themselves. What, what are we lacking? There's something we're lacking. We can get it somewhere other than God. Oh, we are lacking a lot of things, including clothing. It's this very physical, very tangible form of a sense of guilt, a sense of lacking, a sense of moving outside of the direction that God created man to live and move in. And God graciously, literally covers their guilt. <coughs> their guilt is manifested in feeling awkward about being naked, and so he closed them. And he closed them in animal skins. There's only one source of animal skin. That's animals. So as far as we know, for the first time, as a result of man stepping outside of the true source of life and love, blood is shed. <coughs> and death into creation. The result of man stepping out of his source of life and love is immediate blood and death. And also separation. Because God cast Adam and Eve from the garden, not just as punishment. I'm sure that could, that, there could be a legitimate argument for that. But basically, Adam and Eve had declared that they wanted to find, they, were, they weren't getting all that they needed, so they needed to find some life and some love apart from God. So God says, go do it. Go out and find them. So they're sent out of the garden, and they're separated. There's a there's a break in that community, that constant connection of love and life and God. And if you read on in Scripture, you see there's successive generation, generation after generation. With each successive generation, there seems to be this slow amplification of these three themes of blood and death and separation. As man scrambles to try to fill this void within him that was meant to be filled by God, his life and his love. Man scrambles more and more and is more and more distracted. And scrambles more and more and is more and more distracted. And the themes of blood and death and separation perpetuate. So God decides to give man a reminder and establish a nation. He's going, to, he's going to establish this nation, and he's going to be so overt and so direct in his sharing and pouring out of life and love that this nation is really going to thrive. And all the nations around this nation are going to see the love and life of God reflected from it. They're going to flock, be reconnected to God, who is our source. So he goes to Abraham, who was trying to seek God, and tells Abraham, I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. Blessed to be a blessing. I'm just going to pour it on you so that the nations can see it and come and say, what's going on? And you can say, we are receiving our life and love from God, and you will thrive as well if you do the same. God gives that promise to Abraham. Abraham passes to Isaac. Isaac to his son Jacob. And so on and so forth as this young little seed of a nation called Israel grows and eventually falls into slavery in Egypt. And as we know from various cinematic productions, both animated and live, Moses comes to save Israel from Egypt. And as 
the small nation of Israel leaves Egypt, God, in this huge production, parts the Red Sea and saves them from the Egyptians. Then God sends bread from the sky, called manna, or what is it? Manna from the sky, bread from the sky, water from a rock, all these crazy things. God is being overt in sharing his life and his love. It's going to work great, right? It's going to be so overt, these people are not going to miss it. Except they do at the first possible moment. Moses, their leader, goes up on a mountain to get some instructions from God. And as soon as they, he goes, the people freak out. And that's a paraphrase. Um, in Exodus 32, this is what happens. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's happened. Uh, what is not, we do not know what has become of him. They're like, hey, we, we, uh, we know that we got the, uh, the Red Sea parted, bread from the sky, water from the rock, but he's been gone for like eight minutes, and uh, we need something else. And so we're going we're gonna to come up with something else. There's got to be something else. There's got to be something else. So we create a, a golden cow. Seems logical. That's going to be our source. So Moses comes down from the mountain, is understandably upset, frustrated. He rebukes the people, and he shares with them God's law. And God's law was, was given to the nation of Israel as a very, very tangible reminder that only in him would their life and love be found. That there would be natural, innate, built-in consequences, huge consequences, to continually seeking outside of God's presence for that life and love. So the law was established, and it's crucial at this point to recognize something, and that's this. At the root of man's sin is not an inability to follow a list of rules. That's certainly true of all of us. If you spend any time in a preschool uh, classroom or in an SEC hearing or anything in between, you'll see man has no ability to follow rules. But that's a symptom. The whole rule-following thing is a symptom. At the root of man's sin is an inability to recognize the greatness of God and the reality that he has created us in such a way that he is what we must believe. And so all that the law does, this huge volume of law, is constantly point the people of Israel to, to the reality that, one, it's only in him that life and love are going to be found, and two, with, apart from his presence, they will constantly fail in those attempts. So part of the law was this reminder of the cost, the reminder of the cost of pursuing life and love apart from him. It was a series of daily sacrifices of animals. A daily sacrifice by a priest reminding the people that the cost of pursuing life and love apart from him is blood and death. It was a third theme, separation. The temple that was built to be the place of these sacrifices, at the very center of that temple is a room called the Holy of Holies, where the high priest would go once a year on the Day of Atonement and ask forgiveness for the entire nation for an entire year of seeking life and love apart from him. 
And separating the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple, the rest of the world, was this curtain. The Holy of Holies was the place where God's presence dwelt. And the, the high priest was the only human that was allowed to go into God's presence. So you had these daily sacrifices where blood and death were perpetuated day after day after day after day. And you've got God's presence sequestered to this one room that only one person can go into. So woven into the very fabric of Israel's culture was this daily and yearly rhythm of reminder that blood, death, and separation were the only possible results of seeking life and love apart from them. Unfortunately, years and decades and centuries proved that Israel is completely incapable of following just its one most important law, to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your might and with all your soul. Incapable. And remember, Israel's purpose was to, to get that, to receive life and love from God and reflect that out so that all the nations could get it as well. So because Israel failed, the rest of the world is also shrouded in ignorance, forgetting this old, old, old truth that we were created by God, that we were created in his image, that we were created in this special way to receive all life and love from him. And so those themes of blood and death and separation echo across generations, across nations, across continents. So what does God do? He does the unthinkable. He does the unfathomable. He does the unreasonable. He takes on flesh and enters that world, our world, of blood and death and separation. To what end? For what purpose? What does it, what does it get? Remember, God created us to share in that life and love. He desires that. And so the, the verse that is most known around the world, thanks to sporting event posters, John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And one lesser known one, as Jesus is talking about why he's on earth, he tells the people that he came, that we may have life and have it abundantly. So God took on flesh, became human, to bring back the truth that we were created to receive life and love, life and love from him. But the people were not looking for the presence of God. They were not looking for the healing of God. They were looking for a king, a king that would wage war. And not wage war on death, not wage war on separation from God, but wage war on the human enemies of Israel. That's what they wanted. Because that's how they were going to get their life and love, to be the most dominant nation on earth. And so they did exactly, I think, what we would do in the same position. They brought him in to our world. Blood, death, separation. From the moment of the fall, Man constantly striving, finding some source of life and love apart from him, only to find the inevitable result of blood, death, separation, 
culminates in the only way it could possibly culminate. Taking such speed that when God, our creator, the source of life and love, comes into our midst, we simply greet him with the blood, death, and separation that's in our life. And as he hangs on the cross and cries, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He takes full part in our curse of blood and death and separation. That is how the story should end. It's the only appropriate ending to the story. This race of people desperate to find life, desperate to find love somewhere else. It's got to be somewhere else. The only appropriate end is that we would kill the one real source. But two things happen instead. First, a curtain is torn. The most physical and visible reminder of God's separation from his people is torn in half. No more separation. And then the second thing, Christ dies on Friday, Saturday the Sabbath, it's quiet, it's silent, Jesus' followers are mourning, and then on Sunday morning, as a handful of ladies go to bring spices to prepare the body of Jesus, they're greeted with an empty tomb. Resurrection. Christ is risen. He could have returned to his father without rising from the dead. It's not something he necessarily had to do. He could have left this race exactly where it belonged, completely submerged in blood and death and separation. But instead, this was the result. We, we prayed through this. From 1 Corinthians, death is swallowed up in victory. O oh, death, where is your victory? O oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The death and resurrection of Christ is about this. Ours was a legacy of blood. Ours was a legacy of death. And ours was a legacy of separation. It was all we had coming to us. And Christ, through his death and resurrection, provided an exchange of our legacy from blood, death, and separation to love, life, and reunion. Take a moment and think about a world where the story ended on Friday. That 2,000 years later, we are born into a place where once there was this guy named Jesus and he died. Period. Hopeless blood, death, and separation. That's what Easter is about. When we say, he is risen indeed. 
in that little phrase is this reality. And that's why it can't be just Easter. It's got to be every aspect of our lives. Our very existence should cry out, He is risen indeed. And that starts with birth. Not our physical birth. But Jesus, while he was on earth, said that we all, if we're going to participate in this exchange of legacy, must be born again. Not a physical rebirth, but an exchange. An exchange of blood, death, and separation for life, love, and reunion. And it's, it's called a new birth because it's, it's completely a new, completely different life. As we acknowledge that just like Adam, just like Eve, just like Israel, just like every other human, we are destined, we are chained to a legacy of blood death and separation if we do not come to the cross of Christ and acknowledge he is the source of life and love and only through his resurrected self in us can we reunite with our original destiny, our original purpose to live in him and experience life and love in him? We can declare that he has risen indeed in our birth. But he doesn't stop there. I think that Jesus called it a new birth because it wasn't, it's not meant to be a transaction. It's not a walking down an aisle or praying of some special prayer. It's the beginning of a completely new life. And as we live that life, our very existence, every day, should be filled with the reality that he is risen indeed. And we wake up in the morning actually talking with the risen Christ, instead of checking our Facebook. When we think about what our value is, what our worth is, what our significance is, it's looking at that through the lens of Christ's act on the cross as opposed to our success, our appearance, how people think about us, how many followers do we have on Instagram. But finding it in the one who created us and who expressed that life and love so clearly. And it looks like as we inevitably still fall short because we live in a world that's still entrenched in blood and death and separation, that we come to the cross and confess that we, we are insufficient, but that he is sufficient. In 1 Corinthians 15, we talked about it earlier again, Paul says that if Christ is not risen, we are, be, we are to be pitied more than anybody. Like, if Christ isn't risen, man, everybody should feel sorry for us. I think it's just as true that if we live as if Christ is not risen, we are still to be pitied above all. To believe, to acknowledge the resurrection of Christ, to acknowledge this exchange of blood, death, and separation for life, love, and reunion, and still live every day as if we've got to find some other source. We've got to get love from somebody else through their affirmation of us. We've got to get it through success. We've got to get it through looking good. Our life should proclaim that he is risen. We can also proclaim that he is risen in death. 
Two days ago, Good Friday marked the one-year anniversary of um, my aunt's death, who I grew up next to. And she passed away with my wife, Stacy, sitting next to her bed, singing hymns. And what Stacy didn't know was that she would sit next to three more beds, those of her mother and her grandmother and her grandfather, over just nine months, singing the same hymns and watching the same turning some into fire. And for us, this past year has been marked by grief more than any other emotion or sensation or experience. It's been filled with tears and pain and confusion and listlessness, but also hope. In the modern world, death is sequestered and hidden away behind closed doors. Its inevitability is is masked with cosmetic surgery and mountains of medications, but its inevitability remains. And Scripture does not call us to not grieve those who die. Scripture calls us to not grieve as those without hope. We have hope. For us, children of the resurrection, Death is not an end, it is a beginning. Right now on earth, we, we see God dimly. <coughs> 1 Corinthians 13 says we see him like through a glass darkly, like a, a, a really dirty piece of glass. But upon death, we finally, for the first time since the Garden of Eden before the fall, in the moment of death, for those whose hope is anchored, in Christ, who came to bring us back to life and love, at the moment of death, the first time since before the fall, we experience full life, full love, the way we were initially created to. For us, death is not a benediction, it's an invocation. Christ died to conquer death. And he rose to give us new life. May our births, may our lives, and may our deaths perpetually declare that he is risen indeed. Let's pray. Jesus, so much of my life declares that I need something else. And every voice on this earth is screaming the answer to what it is we need. There's millions of answers for what we need. And I believe those answers so are. I ask that for each of us here, you would root us to the reality of your cross. reality that life and love and union with you is possible again. Help us to pursue that with all of us. <clears throat>